Welcome back to another episode of a podcast soon by a software engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and boy, do we have an episode. It's episode 20. I'm doing an AMA just because I can't believe there's 20 episodes, and I mean, hopefully it just keeps on going. But yeah, first of all, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who's been part of the project, so all the amazing guests I've had on the show, all the help I've had in terms of setups and all the questions that I had, and mainly, obviously, everybody who's been listening. So you guys, a big shout out to you to even have the slight interest into what I do for fun. So yeah, thank you for that. As for the AMA, um, thank you to everybody who sent questions over. Uh, some of them were really wild. Uh, I've managed to separate them into different categories. So we're going to be covering life, work, tech, and podcast. And I've also numbered them so that, you know, if you want to jump to any of them, you know what progress you've made too. So, hey, user experience. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. The first category is life. Question number one. What is your favorite non-Asian Asian food in North America? Um, well, that's a great way to start this. Um, I guess the context is because there's a lot of, I guess, takeout places, not in Asia. So like in, in the US, UK, Canada, where they just have loads of stuff on the menu that you can't even order in, in Asia. So I guess my favorite non-Asian Asian food in North America would be the General Tao chicken, um, which is basically like this fried chicken that is like slobbered in like a really sweet sauce. Um, I've probably had it growing up just because for some reason my parents kept on ordering it, even though they know that it's not really a thing. Uh, I've probably had it my whole life, so if you want a really good one, check out the one on Cote d'Ange in Montreal. Like, I would definitely go back there anytime to get some. Question number two. What is your favorite food from Asia? Well, that's a little bit easier to answer. <laughs> I actually have this debate quite a lot, which I guess tells a lot about me. But um, the question I keep on asking people or asking myself is, if I had to be stuck on an island and choose one kind of food for the rest of my life, what would it be? And the debate always comes down between ramen or pho. So if I had to choose one, I'm going with pho. I could probably have that three, four, five times a day. And apparently it's a little bit healthier than, than ramen. So, hey. Question number three. Do you own any crypto? I have to admit, I currently don't. Um, not that it's a bad thing or anything, but I feel like just because how much I've read about it, how much I, you know, I'm geeking out about it, that I don't have any, that's kind of crazy. But, um, yeah, I think I think... Just because it's been slightly harder to, you know, own any crypto uh, for the general public. And I still consider myself, you know, very general public. I, I love keeping everything that is, you know, quite everyday life as opposed to, oh, you need this specific technology to hold a bit of crypto and a bit of these other coins. Uh, but no, I don't own any crypto. And I think I should. It's definitely booming. And am I too late to the party? I probably am. Question number four. Why do Spurs keep on losing? First of all, come on, you Spurs. Um, we're talking about the Premier League here. I guess I've been quite a big fan of Tottenham Hotspur for the past, I guess, like, years now. And, um, yeah, nobody can explain why we always want to finish second, third, or fourth in the league every single season or something. But I think it's just from season to season, you just got something to look forward to. And I honestly think that when Spurs win the league, the whole world is going to collapse. So, hey, that's going to happen next year. Question number five. Why didn't you stay in Montreal after school? Yeah, um, I guess for context, I was born and raised in Montreal, and I did all my education there. So elementary school, secondary school, uh, CJP University, did all that fun stuff in Montreal. But actually, my first, I guess, like real tech job after university, well, straight after university, was in Hong Kong. So why didn't I say Montreal after graduating? I guess at that time, if I had to look back, it was because I guess I wasn't like the most top student and the most attractive thing out there that got offered like a million different options. Um, I mean, fortunately, I got, you know, offered at least one. 
And I think just looking at the different, you know, paths that I could have taken at that time, it was uh, staying in Montreal or actually, you know, living in, Mon- uh, sorry, living in Hong Kong, working there, you know, nine to five, you know, your typical programmer job and actually be closer to my family. So most of my family do live in Hong Kong, especially my grandparents. So like being able to go there and like just have dim sum every single morning, that was a great uh, thing to think about. So um, at the end of the day, I just made the jump. And um, do I regret it? Not really. Did I ever wish that I did stay in Montreal to work? I did. I'll probably try to do it one day. But I guess uh, right after university, that kind of ended up happening that way. So question number six. What are your number one pros and cons from all the different places you've lived abroad? Great question. Um, if I had to list real quickly the, I guess, most memorable places I've lived. I've lived in Montreal, Hong Kong, London, and now uh, in the Bay Area. The number one pro of each is going to be a logo like, let's go through them. So um, Montreal, of course, you can't say anything bad about it except for the weather. Um, so that's gonna be my one con. It's it's crazy cold. I mean, during the summer you probably have like six, seven, eight snowstorms where you just gotta shovel everywhere and like your car doesn't work. You gotta get to work like really early in the morning. So I guess like that's one of the appeal for some people, but for me that's probably the biggest con. But if I had to do like the actual list of pros, I mean, it's endless. Uh, Montreal multiculturality. You would find every kind of people out there. And you would never feel that you don't belong. So that's one of the greatest thing about you know Montreal, but also in Canada. Uh, the other great thing is that you kind of learn French by osmosis, just living there, growing up there. My parents actually don't speak a lick of French, but then I end up going to a French school, and then you kind of just learn it as you go. There was kind of a sweet moment where my parents uh, wasn't able to help us with our homeworks, but that turned out fine, so really, really like that kind of story. Um, the other pros of Montreal, I guess, the food, man, get me some poutine, and I'm good to go every single day. As for Hong Kong, um, where do I start? I think the number one cons is usually the living situation. So it's really tough to find somewhere comfortable where you have your own personal space. Uh, real estate is really expensive there. So even if you're renting or just trying to buy a flat there, uh, it's nearly impossible. So that's probably the biggest con. In terms of pros, I think it's such a popular city just because of the food, just because of the interactions got over there. And for me, the biggest pros of living in Hong Kong was being really close to my family. These are, well, I guess this is the part of family that I didn't really end up growing up with so being able to see them like at any time during you know any day that was definitely a big pro of living in Hong Kong so guys definitely go check it out living in London is definitely quite an experience um I guess the biggest con is very similar to Hong Kong as well uh real estate is quite expensive so finding a flat and you know trying not to get scammed while looking for a flat was quite an issue so I guess that's one of the biggest con but if you start listing the pros in terms of like um there's also a level of multiculturality there that was almost equivalent to Montreal anyways, where you would have all kinds of people from different kind of background, and then just being able to live that experience was definitely a pleasure. Uh, another great pro is that the English accent. I don't know what it is. It sounds so smart. You kind of get a little bit influenced by it, so that was great. And then I guess one of the other pros I could throw in there is that it's such a modern, popular city that a lot of the events, uh, the more popular pop-ups that you want to see and the more, you know, the cultural side of, you know, a city, they always end up being available in London. So if you ever wanted to, you know, live every kind of culture, but without having to, you know, travel as far as you need to, then give London a shot, you'll, you'll be exposed to a lot of that. And currently, living in the Bay Area... What is the number one pros and cons? I mean, I feel like the cons are too repetitive at this point. The Bay Area is absolutely expensive in terms of trying to have, you know, uh, somewhere to live. So even renting a room is a little bit outrageous. 
but a lot of it makes up for it. Why do people even go to these, you know, places to begin with? I guess the pros I'd see is that obviously the tech jobs. Um, they're known to be quite aggressive, and I guess like they 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 pay decently well out there. So I guess that's definitely one of the pros of uh, living in the Bay Area. Another pro is basically, I guess for me in terms of engineering, is just learning the best engineering practices out there. Uh, just knowing that there are more concentrated number of companies and engineers out there that actually, you know, have this mindset of always competing, always being, you know, the best and always finding something that scales really quickly. It's really nerdy, but I guess that's one of the pro of being there so that you get exposed to that more frequently. And then maybe you're going to be able to apply that to what you do. So yeah, that's my pros and cons for all the places. Um, I mean, the list is endless, but definitely if you want any more specifics about it, just ping me. More than happy to talk about that any day. Question number seven. How was the transition from Montreal to the Bay Area? I love this question uh, just because it is definitely different. So if we're talking about technically, the jump is basically from Montreal to Hong Kong, then Hong Kong to London, then London to the Bay Area. But if we want a quick comparison for anybody interested from going straight from Montreal to the Bay Area, the transition wasn't too bad. Bad. I think the biggest part is understanding that the cost of living is, you know, quite a lot in California. So as I was saying, the cost of living, first of all, finding out somewhere to live, that's going to be your biggest priority at that point. I remember when I moved there, that was the biggest challenge. But after you kind of figure that bit out, the rest kind of comes together. So weather-wise, um, it never rains in California. It's a good and a bad thing because, you know, there's a drought happening and people are always worried about that. But I think if you contrast it with Montreal, the weather is going to be a big game changer. And then in terms of the day-to-day, -day, I think it's quite comparable between Montreal where you basically got to drive everywhere. I think if you don't live in like the middle of San Francisco, you'll probably need a car. So uh, if you're already used to driving in Montreal, then that's not too bad. Um, I guess from my experience, the transition wasn't too bad. Uh, I've always been used to mostly taking the bus everywhere just because, uh, you know, in London. Well, taking the bus and taking the, the tube, so... That was, I guess, quite similar to when I moved from London to the Bay Area. Question number eight. What's the best holiday slash travel destination you've ever been to? Jesus, where do I start? <laughs> um, so I guess one of my favorite time was when I used to live in London. I gave myself a goal every year to do 10 new countries. I guess like it was kind of cheating because you could be in a country for like a day and then that would count as that goal. But then again, if you kind of add them up, it kind of makes a great experience. So I did that for a couple of years. And I guess among all those destinations, I mean, some of the examples I've been to was Hungary, France, Belgium, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, all those fun places. I guess the most memorable ones I would say is uh, these rune bars in Budapest. Those were absolutely fun. Uh, we did this trip where it was basically, we started off in Budapest and we made it all the way to Prague by like bus and train. So basically we stopped in the middle at, at Bratislava as well. Um, that was really fun because the whole trip is basically, you know, really cheap booze and <laughs> nobody could really complain about that. Um, the other one that I do remember a lot is this one time where, shout out to Carlos, uh, we went to his beach house in the south of Spain for like a whole week and that was absolutely blazing. Uh, coming from Montreal, somebody who just barely see any sun out there, it was quite a contrast of just living the life at the coast, at the beach, and just being absolutely tan at the other day. So those are definitely one of the better uh, holiday destinations I've ever been to. Question number nine. Where did that Corpse Bose picture thing come from? Yeah, so context, let's put this um, on my Instagram if you guys want to go check it out. 
I actually have this like pose that I do at nearly every single new location that I've been to. So all the cities across, um, I guess, the world that I've traveled to. So, you know, the ones I've listed previously. That pose, um, the origin of it is basically on my graduation day of university. So that was, what, 2016? Um, that was basically just how we felt at the end. Shout out to FX, shout out to Victor, shout out to Cheng Lu, all the people that I went to university with. Um, it was basically this like fried moment where we just realized, now what? You graduated, you got your degree, then what? So uh, I guess the first ever time that corpse pose came in was at that graduation in front of one of the buildings at McGill. And I just laid down there. And then uh, I guess it kind of just reflected across the past couple of years of just traveling and just being into different places. So yeah, the original story was from then. Question number 10. What's your trick to always be so fucking hyped all the time? Am I? Am I really? <laughs> um, no, I think I get that, uh, you know, here and there where people say like, why are you so energetic? Why do you got so much energy? A lot of time I probably don't even notice it. So I guess that's a problem to begin with. No, I think like just the way I talk, maybe. I know I talk really quickly, so that kind of makes it look like, you know, I'm awake and I'm hyped all the time. But I think a lot of times it's just genuine curiosity. If I'm really interested in something, I'll probably ask more questions. And the more I ask questions, the more I get excited. So that probably comes out in my voice at the end of the day. But in terms of trick, I guess, like, one of the places that I do remember that actually had this, like, really big hype and positivity, like, situation going on was during the summer, I used to be a summer day camp counselor. So I was looking over maybe 30 to 40 kids between 5 and 6 year old. And I guess it was a requirement at that time to be hyped and, you know, super energetic. Just because you won't get through the day if you weren't. Um, so it kind of, you know, worked out well that it wasn't really a struggle to be hyped and active. Because a lot of times what happened is that you would feed off of other kids being hyped and active. And then you would just end up becoming even more. So it's kind of like this loop, this vicious circle. So at the end of the day, my trick to being hyped all the time is basically... Just find something that you're really interested in. <laughs> it's going to come naturally where you get really excited. And when the more you want to talk about it, the more interesting it gets. And just the natural feel of being hyped all the time really stems from that. Question number 11. Did you ever struggle with being an Asian Canadian? Well, thanks for the hard-hitting questions, Mary Carr. <laughs> um, I guess from my personal experience, and this is definitely very personal experience, I didn't ever really struggle with being an Asian Canadian. Till today, I don't think there's a single moment where I'm not confident to say, look, my parents are from Hong Kong, I was born and raised in Canada, and that's basically how I am. And I guess a lot of that could be, I guess, explained by the fact that, yeah, I grew up in Montreal, so big shout out to Montreal for being super multicultural. So that helped a lot. But I think on another aspect, I guess, whether I was oblivious or because my parents were shielding me from all the social aspect of being an Asian Canadian... I think without them, I wouldn't be as confident to be able to share everything I know about Hong Kong and everything I know about Canada slash Montreal, because those are all stuff that I'm extremely proud of at the end of the day. Question number 12. What's the hardest challenge you ever faced? Well, the biggest challenge that I'm facing is being Asian Canadian, and no, I'm kidding. <laughs> For the past couple of years, at least, the biggest challenge that probably pops up all the time is visas. Being able to work abroad, well, legally work abroad, uh, that has always been a topic of conversation that I have pretty often. Uh, so when I was working in London and now that I'm working in the States, there's always this, you know, time sensitive feeling that, Hey, look, you're kind of there for this given period of time, unless you end up getting like a full permanent residency. And then that's going to be a different, you know, topic of conversation. But yeah, thinking about working abroad has always been, I guess, a struggle, a challenge at the end of the day. But fortunately there are different programs that do help you get the correct visa and then actually end up working abroad. Question number 13. When was that moment that you felt like you wanted to do this with your life? 
Yeah, that's a good open-ended question in terms of what is this? What is doing this? Um, in my case, doing this, I guess, is basically software engineering. It's building applications with the computer and then just figuring out how it actually impacts the world around you, I guess. I guess the moment I realized that I wanted to do with my life is probably when when you write your first program or when you write your first code and you realize that it's a blank canvas and then you could literally, you know, put anything you want in there and then you have full control of it and then you could actually, you know, impact other people because they're using it at the end of the day. That's probably one of the realization that, hey, doing this is pretty cool. You get some creative freedom and then you actually get to build cool stuff out of it. But I guess that was a quite a good moment where when you realize that somebody is actually willing to pay you to do that, I think that was probably the moment you realize that you could do this for your, for, your, for your life or even for the rest of your life. That case, you're doing something that you love at the end of the day. You're doing something that you're able to hone, something that you're able to get better at to improve. And if you're able to enjoy life by getting paid for doing it, then, you know, that's even better. So I think that was probably uh, one of the better moments <laughs> of my life. Question number 14. What was the first milestone you reached that made you realize you were living your dream? Another great question. Um, the first milestone that I probably remember is when I was able to, I guess, start bringing my parents on yearly holidays. So growing up, it wasn't really a thing in my family. We didn't decide like every year we're going to do this one destination. I mean, we still did destination, but just more sporadically. So the milestone that made me realize that I was living my dream was basically when I started bringing my parents on different kind of random holidays, uh, like bringing my mom to the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore in a single trip. That was pretty cool. And yeah, I think that's probably the only reason why I have any dreams because, you know, they started all of it. Question number 15. What's the biggest mistake you made that was a vital lesson but still cut deep? I guess in a way... I'm fortunate to not be able to think about the biggest mistakes. I don't think there was a big mistake that I've done. Uh, but there has been mistakes that do pop up. One of them is, I guess, real estate related. So uh, living in London, like, you know, trying to find a flat, that was absolutely crazy and everything. So I guess there was a lot of mistakes related to that during that time. And in terms of, I guess, more the tech side, what kind of mistake I've made, I think there was one time where we just ended up like writing over a production database. And... Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we were able to, you know, recover and, like, patch it up at the end of the day. But, yeah, that was definitely uh, a funny moment, <laughs> a scarring moment, you would call it, and I do remember that. Question number 16. What's the next big thing you're working towards? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's tough to say exactly what I'm working towards because there's nothing really specific, but I guess there's a couple of projects that I'm working on. Obviously, every day when I'm doing code and everything, like that's definitely something I'm working towards. They're just getting better at it and knowing all the engineering operation side of, you know, companies, organizations, and seeing how doing some changes make it better and worse. I guess that's something I'm working towards. But in terms of like a different project that is sort of related is, I mean, obviously I run this podcast so I could, you know, share all the geeky stuff, all the engineering stuff uh, in that world. I think it's just finding any way of improving people's lives or getting people interested in tech to begin with. So whether they just know slightly more about some technology or them changing their whole life and getting into tech uh, without previously being into tech, I think that's something that I always keep in the back of my mind. And everything that I work on hopefully contributes to that at the end of the day. So in terms of if you want to call it what's the next big thing I'm working towards, it's probably just being, you know, open and putting out more content out there so that if ever anybody wants to get their foot into the tech industry, they somehow have a way to do it. Question number 17. What would be your dream project? Oh boy, where do I start? Um, I guess on the non-technical side of my dream project is just, you know, getting the best life for my parents, for my grandparents, for just anybody, you know, in my family. 
Uh, I mean, there's a lot of steps to that. So, you know, just just making sure that they're comfortable and, you know, they get whatever they want in the world. That's probably one of the bigger dream projects that I have. Uh, but if we talk about, you know, on the tech side, what kind of dream project I want to get onto? I think I'm doing a lot of stuff that I, you know, I'm dreaming of doing. Like being able to talk to crazy cool people on this podcast was something that I don't ever regret starting. So that's one of the cool dream projects I'm doing at the moment. And I guess like more on the professional side, like working with any kind of other engineers, like whether they're interns, juniors, or even just like regular engineers, senior engineers, being able to help everybody be 1% better at the end of the day, being able to learn something new every day from them and maybe them from me. That's probably the dream project that I've been trying to push. And I've probably been able to, you know, live for the past couple of years. So I guess in terms of what I'm looking forward to work on, what kind of project would be, you know, my dream project, those would be it. Question number 18. Where do you want to end up in terms of being a software dev? Yeah, I think this is just another great continuation of that topic. Yeah, honestly, like, I think a lot of people in tech just want to think about not being in tech at the end of the day, being retired at the age of whatever as early as possible and just living life. I think personally, in terms of, you know, being a software engineer and a software developer, I just want to end up being able to exponentially affect other people. Uh, I mean, this is very geeky when you talk about linearly, you know, growing or exponentially growing. I want to be able to exponentially grow, not just myself, but everywhere around you. So instead of being able to help one person at a time, just find a way to help, you know, one, two, four, eight, sixteen people at a time. So maximize the effort of whatever you do and make sure that it's for a good cause at the end of the day. Question number 19. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Yeah, retired. Retired. <laughs> um, no, this is, I'm just reading myself from, uh, you know, just saying that everybody who's been working for the past couple of years, that's probably what they strive for. But in 10 years, I think even just increasing the creative side of whatever I do, I think like when you work in tech, a lot of it is very technical. You got to, you know, build stuff. I think in 10 years, I just want to have, I guess, a bigger balance between being technical and creative and yeah, just doing what I like at the end of the day. I mean, I'm doing it nowadays. So I think whether in 10 years I do that or I currently do it doesn't really matter. I think it's just being able to realize it and keep on doing it. And if ever you're able to help somebody else do that as well, then that's probably where I want to see myself in 10 years, just being who I am today or better. Question number 20. If you could start your workday with any Group A camp song, which one would it be? Perform it in parentheses. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. <laughs> a bit of context. During the summer, I used to be a summer day camp counselor. And every morning, we used to gather every single kid at the day camp around uh, just to do camp songs. We did that for like maybe 10, 15 minutes every day. Dude, we absolutely crushed it. Like Amanda, me, Rebecca, anybody from Group A back then, we absolutely murdered Camp Circle every morning. So <laughs> big shout out to them. If I had to choose a uh, song to start my workday, it would have to be the Gloop Gloop Frog song. It sounds crazy, but it kind of goes like this. Gloop Gloop when the little green frog one day. Gloop Gloop when the little green frog. Gloop Gloop when the little green frog one day. And they all went Gloop Gloop Glop. But we all know frogs go. Na 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 na. Na 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 na. We all know frogs go. Na 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 na. And they don't go Gloop Gloop Glop. I can't believe I actually did that. But um, yeah, that's the thing. You would do that, but then you do it at different speeds. And then depending on, you know, how crazy the group gets, you might have to calm it down. But I honestly remember doing that so many times and I could definitely see myself doing that every single day, every morning. All right, so we're moving on to uh, the work section. So this is basically everything, I guess, related to my job. Let's see what we got here. Question number 21. How did you get a job in different countries? So... 
the moment I graduated, the moment I actually handed in my last final exam, I remember that. I didn't have anything lined up. I didn't have like a full-time job lined up. I didn't really do internships during the summer. So um, at that time, I was basically just being like, okay, now what? So the next day, I remember I probably ended up sending out maybe 200, 300, 400 applications to different companies around the world. And I didn't really ask myself about the logistics behind it because, I mean, back then I had no idea how any of that worked to begin with. So the the hope there was that I get replies from, I guess, different companies around the world and see what, what happens after. And fortunately, I think that's basically what ended up happening up. Um, I got hit up by a company in Hong Kong, and then just speaking to them, you get more details in terms of, oh, what's the legality of working there? So I guess that's kind of my way of getting different jobs in different countries. I guess after going from Hong Kong to London, and then London to the Bay Area, it was kind of the same thing. So every time you kind of see a new opportunity, I think the first thing I try to figure out is how do I legally work there? And then uh, as you talk to whoever party on their side, they usually have a lot of answers to those questions. So I think the most important part is just having the first conversation, uh, having them reach out to you, having you reach out to them. And then from that point, it will be a lot easier to figure out how to get a different job in a different country. Question number 22. What was your experience like being in a junior programming role slash your first ever role? Was it different from what you expected? I guess my experience as a, you know, my first ever full-time software engineering job, it was quite interesting because you had a lot more freedom than you thought you were going to be. Um, There's not that much hand-holding. I mean, there is obviously because uh, there's going to be code reviews and all that kind of fun stuff, but you actually have a bigger impact than you think at the end of the day. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking from my experience just because um, I've always worked in this like startup world where the idea of being very high impact is definitely there. Uh, so I guess from my experience of these first few years of being a software engineer, it was definitely that. It was surprising how much autonomy you would have and how much you could learn at the end of the day just by doing it instead of reading it from a book, for example. Was that my expectation when I started doing this? Um, I guess no. I was expecting a lot more hand-holding. But fortunately, as you work into it, you kind of realize that uh, it's a balance. a balance of autonomy, but also you do have the help that you need to when you need it. So that was my uh, experience. Question number 23. As someone who's worked in the UK and the US, have you found your work as a software engineer to be universal, or does it vary country by country? I actually love talking about this, mostly because my opinion on this is that it is very universal. Just because the way I looked at how I was doing my job day-to-day in the UK and London, and how I'm doing it currently, or even how I did it in the past, there are a lot of very similar questions and challenges that we end up trying to tackle at the end of the day. The interesting topic that uh, I keep on talking about is basically you could have two engineers doing the exact same thing, one in London and one in the Bay Area, and the one in Bay Area would get paid so much more at the end of the day. So it sounds controversial. It sounds that there's, you know, some brainlessness to it. But I guess there's a lot of factor in terms of like, oh, what's the talent pool? Um, What's the competitor paying in that area? What's the cost of living in that area? So uh, I could definitely dive into that, but I'll have to save for another time. But yeah, I think in brief... I do think that after working in at least two different countries, you do end up realizing that software engineering is quite universal and people are able to share knowledge across continent just because of, you know, how things are laid out. Question number 24. What did you find the most surprising about working in the UK? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing, it wasn't really about the work bit. It was more just the British culture to begin with. Um, I mean, the accent is absolutely sick, so I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I guess I was very fortunate just meeting a lot of cool people that were 
honest, then if they want to say something, they'll say it directly, and then just the absolute bans that they talk about all the time. So I think a combination of all that is uh, what I found the most surprising, but really enjoyed uh, when I was working in London. And I do miss it every single day. Question number 25. What are effective methods of how non-developers in an organization can suggest ideas for a platform's development? Yeah, I love that. I guess throughout my career, I've also gotten the chance to work with a lot of non-tech people, uh, which is just as great. And a lot of times they do have insanely great ideas and they want them, want to share them at least. And it's not always the easiest thing to communicate with the engineering team just because there's so much on the plate all the time. And then you got different parties like stakeholders, you know, product managers, and even our clients trying to figure out what we want at the end of the day. Uh, but if you're part of an organization and you do want to give feedback and feature requests to your engineering team, I think um, if you have enough scope and enough, you know, designs and guidelines to actually know what you want, just put them together, present it, and just see if it works at the end of the day. There's nothing wrong with that, and I think it's really valuable whenever you do decide to do it. In, I guess, different organizations, some of them do have a structured pipeline, I guess, a structured flow of how to request a feature to the engineering team, whether it be like a website where you could submit a ticket and see if they could be, you know, implemented, or if it's like a bug and you got to do like a bug request, then those exist as well. Um, but yeah, I think depending on the organization, sorry, uh, the method of communication is different. What are good methods? I guess if you're in a smaller team, uh, you could directly just grab an engineer and see what they say about it. So that has always been fun, and I've definitely experienced that, and I personally do enjoy it. Uh, but I guess if you're talking about a more structured world, see if you could implant a system where uh, you, you leverage a tool like Jira or Asana or something like that that actually documents your requests, make them clear enough, have images if you need to, and then have you know somebody closer to the engineering team directly to look at it and see if it works or not. Question number 26. What do you do to look after your mental health when the space between your work environment and your personal life is narrow? Yeah, that's a great topical question because, I mean, at time of recording, we're currently living in a pandemic uh, from the COVID-19 and we are basically locked into our homes for the better to keep everybody safe. So the thing is, uh, being a software engineer, uh, very fortunate to get to work at home full time. But I guess the issue that we're talking about here is that the delineation between actually doing work and having your own personal time and personal life kind of gets really narrow because you don't have to commute anymore. You're basically in your home doing work and also you're in your home trying to enjoy life at the same time. So I guess what do I do to look after our mental health and make sure that there's a distinction between those two? I think for me, it's basically finding something that is obviously not work. So something that you're doing that you clearly know this is not related to work, has nothing to do with it, and uh, you have full control of that. So Personally, I like to talk and complain a lot and rant on a lot of things. So when I have these projects of, you know, running this podcast and then talking to amazing people with different insights on everything, that's one of my ways to keeping myself sane from work because I do know that when I do these kind of stuff, uh, it has nothing to do with work. It's just me wanting to talk and, you know, vent out of it. So that's one of the ways to keep myself sane. But yeah, I just try to understand uh, what time is work and what time is not work and, you know, just enjoy both of them whatever time it is. Question number 27. In your last AMA, you said remote work isn't for you. Obviously, that has changed. How difficult was it for you to adapt? Yeah, so good reference there is that uh, I've never been a big fan of remote working just because I think like just the human interaction and like bumping into other people is something that I personally enjoy. So that is definitely different than what it looks like currently. Currently in a day, obviously, the times that I do get to talk to other people from work is mostly through calls. So whether it be a Slack call, whatever call you want to do, um, that's kind of the interaction you get. And that is not always including video. So 
we're kind of living in a in a different world at the moment. How did I adapt to remote working? Well, I mean, the first thing that kind of stood out was the setup I have at home is very different than the one I had at work. So at work, you basically had a couple of screens, a lot of hardware that you desired, they they would give it to you. So the setup there was quite cool. Standing desk, let's not forget about that. My setup at home was never optimized to be working eight hours a day in front of a computer and just, you know, smashing code on that. So I think that took a while to get adapted to. But also, like, just not having a commute it was, like, a big plus at the end of the day. So there are pros and cons. So, yeah, we're still living that kind of remote life currently. How do I feel about when things open? I think I'm still in the mindset of, like, I'd prefer being at the office, which is weird because at the same time, people do enjoy not having the commute, sorry. But when I was talking about being, you know, present and physical and being able to bump into other people, I probably enjoy that as well. So, well, that was fun talking about the work stuff. Uh, we're going to jump into the category of talking about tech. Uh yeah, my work is very tech-related, but I think a lot of these questions are less related to work, so let's jump into that. Question number 28. Do you listen to something when you code? I always have something <laughs> playing when I code. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. I think I just, I'm a big fan of music to begin with, so that is probably the reason why there's always Spotify playing something in the background whenever I'm on a computer, whether I'm coding or not. And if you're wondering what's on my current playlist at the moment, uh, I have a lot of Tribe Called Quest, Sid, and Toki Monster. Question number 29. How would you describe the stereotypical programmer, and which of those stereotypes do you yourself follow? Yeah, that's a solid question, Nathan. <laughs> um, I think for a long time, especially from the media's perspective, a stereotypical programmer is kind of like the Bill Gatesy vibe, right? Somebody who came from a really technical background and just geek out about any kind of computer-related stuff, so whether it be software or hardware or just anything. I guess that has been the image for a long time. But more recently, you have this image of Silicon Valley tech bros, which is quite different to what the previous image was. So throughout the years, it has changed a lot, albeit still very male-dominated. I think from my perspective of working as a software engineer for the past couple of years, the stereotypical software engineer is somebody who writes code and owns a membership to a climbing wall gym. I don't know how many people have offended from saying that. Uh, but in terms of where do I sit in all these stereotypes, I think I've always just been a very outroverted, I just say a lot of dumb stuff and see what kind of reaction people have kind of person. And I just happen to write code. So I don't know where that fits in all these stereotypes, but that's basically how I would describe myself. Question number 30. What's the biggest code practice change you've had during your career that you wish you could go back and tell your just graduated self to start doing from the beginning? Yeah, if I had to look back and like just tell myself something from the beginning is basically stop relying so much on the safety nets and safeguards of everything. Um, I remember back then whenever I used to write something new, write some code, try to put it onto master, I would always make sure that it's 100% correct. I was, I don't know, it's not even being perfectionist. I was just probably being over paranoid about a lot of things breaking and a lot of things, you know, not going well after deploying. So I guess it's a good habit to have. But if you look at realistically how much, I guess, impact it had on my coding is basically it took longer to develop feature just because you were you know a little bit more paranoid about something going wrong as opposed to if you look at how I code nowadays like the code practices that I do nowadays yes I still try to get the best solution from the get-go so spending a little bit more time doing that that's perfectly fine but you do realize that yes there's room for iteration there's room for feedback and having this input of somebody else looking at your code more often than you just trying to like be perfect from the get-go is definitely a lot better in the long run. So yeah, for the people trying to figure out, you know, how to put out the most perfect code, you can't put out the perfect code. You just got to put out 
good decisions and then over time you iterate over those good decisions and hopefully it makes a better product at the end of the day. Question number 31. How long did it take you to become confident in coding? Yeah, that's another great question. The answer is never. I don't think I was ever confident in writing my code and I don't think I still am super confident about writing it. Uh, just because the amount of solutions for a problem is limitless and you're always thinking about is there a better solution than the one I've put out there. But rather than being more confident in the actual coding, I think over time I've actually gotten a lot more confident in terms of making mistakes and being able to resolve them after. And I think that's probably, you know, what most people strive for at the end of the day because as I was saying, like, there's rarely any time where everything goes right and then you got the perfect solution, the perfect code on the first try, for example. So... I think over time you kind of get used to it, and then what you do get more confident at is not finding the right solution the first time, but being able to look at it a couple more times and then figuring out if there's a better solution or not. So I think that is probably more important. At least that's probably how I've looked at it in the past couple of years. And yeah, how long did that take me to get used to? Um, I guess maybe after, like, I'd say two, three years, you'll realize this pattern of, oh, look, I've made a lot of mistakes, but over time you've managed to fix them. So if you're looking for confidence in coding, don't look for perfect coding, confident coding from the get-go. Look for all the mistakes you've made and the confidence that, yeah, you've probably been able to resolve all of them if you look back at them and all the ones that you have resolved already. So if we're talking about confidence in coding, I think that's where it's at. Question number 32. Do you think tech companies are valued too highly right now? Yeah, this, this question, where do I start as well? <laughs> um, this is, I guess, quite a very broad topic in terms of what is the value of a company and if they're overvalued or not. I think, yeah, we'll have to look at it at different aspects. Um, the world I'm more familiar with is I've always been in a startup world, and valuating a startup is very, I guess, wild. Just because from a year or another, you would have like a startup that previously had no valuation at all, and then suddenly they're worth $25 million. Or you would have like something that is worth 1 million the next thing you know it's worth like 100 million so the exponential growth of startups is there they do exist and that's probably what shocks people a lot so when i think about tech companies and if they're overvalued or not or at least tech startups if they're overvalued or not it's really hard to tell because they fluctuate way too much and next thing you know some of the ideas are really worth that much and some of the ideas are not worth that much and i'd like to believe that a lot of them are actually undervalued which is why so many people want to invest in startups so that side is a little bit wild. If we talk about, I guess, like the bigger companies, like the Fangs and like, you know, big corporate tech companies, those are a little bit more easy to track because obviously they're publicly traded and then they actually have, you know, value, a market cap assigned to it at the end of the day. Currently, during the pandemic, it's a little bit wild because at the beginning, obviously there was a big drop. This is probably March 2020 where the tech sector, but literally I think any other sector just crashed. And then from that point, tech has soared like mad. It's been around maybe a year since, and we've reached all-time high for a lot of companies, even like the biggest companies in the world, Apple, Amazon, Google, those all hit all-time highs during a pandemic where a lot of people got laid off and you know weren't able to work and the economy is doing terrible at the moment. Are they overvalued? I'd say slightly so. Um, the reasoning is they do have that value because they have a dominating, I guess, share in terms of what they do in the tech space. Like A lot of people rely on these big companies onto day-to-day, which is why I would say the value is there. But in terms of this absolutely soaring of instability from one year for a big company like that, maybe doubling, tripling their value, that is a little bit unsettling. So I wouldn't be surprised if a bubble pops at some point. <laughs> but yeah, honestly, I could talk about tech valuation like for days on day. So I guess just keep an eye on it. If you're interested, 
pick one of the company and see what's the trend behind it, and then maybe that'll give you an idea of how valuation works. Question number 33. Over the next 10 years, where do you see trends going for coding languages? Do you think popularity will change? Do you see any language become more popular? Yeah, geez, I'm trying to be an oracle here, guessing what's going to happen in the next 10 years. <laughs> um, there's so many, I guess, parts I need to break down in this question. If we just talk about very generally, I guess over the 10 next years, for big corporations and then how their systems are actually built, I doubt there's going to be anything that's going to, I guess, take over, something new that's going to completely change how people are developing their systems, because I think that takes a lot more than 10 years. For example, a lot of the older systems are still running on C, you know, on Java, and those are languages that have been here for many decades. So in terms of new trends, it's tough to say for big companies, but in terms of technologies of what one person could build for their own project, yes, there's going to be many. There's going to be a lot of trends going on. Um, if we just look back at the past couple of years, I guess the bigger examples, you would have Go, you would have Rust, you would have frameworks like React, which isn't technically a specific language, but those come in and they actually do have a significant impact and they do actually take a great market share of people developing programs at the end of the day. So if I had to, I guess, predict what's going to look like in the next couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a new front-end framework that actually takes over React. That is very reasonable, so maybe I'll give that one that. Um, but in terms of actually having one single language I'll dominate in the next 10 years, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's going to be more new languages coming out, such as Go Rust. And the benefit of that is people will have more choice. And there's going to be loads of benefit in terms of this language will be good at garbage collecting. This language will be good at handling types. This language will be good for you know mathematical problems. Until those interests, those different appeal for different groups of people, different groups of programmers exist, we're going to have like evolving languages at the end of the day. Oh, also, I don't think we're getting rid of JavaScript anytime soon. So. <laughs> Question number 34. Which industries do you think tech will have a disruption on, both good and bad, over the next 5-10 years, and why? All right, another prediction. Here we go. Yeah, so personally, I work in the healthcare space at the moment, the health tech space. So I think that is obviously a biased answer, but I could definitely see a trend going on where people are appreciating technology much more at a faster pace, I guess. Um, than other sectors, because a lot of sectors, like, you know, even going to the grocery store and having, you know, technology as a POS system, and you could just automatically beep your items and then get out of there, that is kind of already trending. But then if you think about all the non-technological side of healthcare, there's a lot of room that people are not used to having tech in those spaces. So at the moment, just from, you know, working from a healthcare, health tech company, that's my answer in terms of what industry will get disrupted in terms of new technologies. But on another one that I guess I don't work in specifically is the marketing space. I have a hunch that it's going to look very, very different. Just because recently, with all the current privacy concerns of literally anything, uh, people are getting more aware of their phones tracking them, their devices tracking them, their everyday life is being tracked basically from you know all these pointers fed to marketers to know what to display to the user at the end of the day. So that space has been you know buzzing for the past couple of years at least just because a lot of people are profiting off it. A lot of business like Google and Facebook actually feed off of that and they're making bank off of that kind of idea. But if you think about what's coming is they're not going to have that much freedom in terms of doing it. And it's not just them. It's literally any media company, any marketer that's using that platform to actually figure out who they're appealing to, what their product is appealing to at the end of the day. So I don't think advertising is ever going away. That's always been part of human history at the end of the day. 
but how they're going to do it is, I think, going to vastly change in the next couple of years. Question number 35. What do you find most challenging when working as a front-end engineer? So a bit of context. I guess for the past couple of years, I've dabbled a lot in terms of, you know, having a lot of UI designs and mainly using React to build a lot of these components. And, you know, the idea of, like, pixel-perfect designs and implementation, that has been words that's been thrown around a lot. But I guess what's the most challenging in the past couple of years of, you know, figuring out the UI problems and what to show to users when you're building software, it's that it's so tough to keep up with the technologies and the trends that's happening at the moment. The example here is obviously React. It hasn't even been around for 10 years. I think currently it's nine years old even, but it has dominated so much that nearly every single app is written in React. Shout out to Angular and Vue as well, because those are definitely (laughs) big boys in the game too. But yeah, I think like the most challenging thing is, yeah, keeping up with the new technologies. And then when you're working with such new technologies, there's not really like a standard across everything. Yes, there's packages that try to, you know, enforce a certain structure to it. But the front end world is just, I guess, so unstructured. Um, There's not like a specific way of your file structure, for example. Um, I do know other languages. I think Ruby on Rails, the, the, the framework, actually has a structure to tell you which file goes where and that. But from what I've seen in the front-end world, it's really tough to keep track of all of it. So, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest challenge is making sure that uh, you're doing the right thing and also have you know at least some sort of documentation resource to say that you're actually doing it correctly. Question number 36. How do you keep up with all the new things that emerge in the front-end world? Any advice on that matter? Yeah, that's a good question and a great follow-up from what I was talking about before. So yeah, in terms of how I see it is, yes, it's good to keep up with the trends. That's probably a safe thing to say. But if you look at it is that a lot of companies end up using technology that has been around for decades. And the reason why some technology is around for decades is because they're reliable, they're well-documented, and they actually you know perform better than most new stuff that are coming out today. So keeping that in mind, one of the examples React would be they probably ended up bettering every other framework that uses JavaScript before them, which is why it got such a huge adoption is because there are benefits into using such new technology at the end of the day. So that's probably why the reason the trend went towards that. But I guess before actually picking up a new technology and being super like, you know, devoted to it, you'll have to do your own research. You'll have to see why people are super on it. And personally, if I had to make any decisions in terms of how do I keep up with the new technologies, Um, I love reading about it. So yeah, I'll read about all of them. I'll try to make a small project if ever it's something that is really cool. Shout out to Next.js. I think they're making a big wave at the moment. But in terms of applying it, um, if I look at it from like the personal project side, use any kind of technologies you want. Those are kind of the place to explore and they are available. These, you know, frameworks, these front-end frameworks are available so that you could actually test out different things and see why one is better than the other. If we're talking about production for a, I guess, a job, a big company where you have a big system and trying to figure out how many people work on it, where like you have teams of 10, 20, 50 engineers, front end engineers trying to build stuff on the app. You'll definitely have to do your due diligence in terms of how updated is that framework? How much support does it actually have the features that you need to implement the feature that you want? Those are all the questions that I have at the end of the day. So yeah, the front end was kind of crazy. You can keep up with it. If you don't keep up with it, I don't think it's the end of the world just because there are solutions that have been there for many, many years and a lot of apps work still with them. Some of the examples would be Django, Ruby on Rails. But yeah, I think it's not a definite answer and I don't have the answer to that. So I'm just really, really happy that it's a buzzing world and it just keeps on growing literally from day to day. 
All right. And finally, the last section, the podcast section. So these are all questions that are related to this podcast and just, you know, podcasting in general. Question number 37. How was it to start a pod from scratch? How did you build your audience? Yeah, love these questions. Um, this kind of goes back to, I guess, how I started this podcast to begin with. I guess the the answer I always have to that is basically, I was very fortunate when I'm working in the tech industry that literally whoever I spoke to had something so interesting to say. Um, the content was there. The conversations were there. The only thing that was missing is just basically recording it and putting it in on the internet. So I think one day I was like, yeah, let's just do it. I ended up spending eight pounds, which is, you know, the British currency, uh, for a dual lapel mic, which is basically the one that you just, you know, hook on people and then you just end up being able to record two people on a single USB into my computer. And I still use it today. Um, big shout out to my first guest ever, Balin. Balin's an absolutely wonderful product manager. And that was back when we just had like random conversations about anything. And I absolutely love picking people's mind about it. So uh, yeah, that's how the first episode came by is basically I asked Balin, hey, we talk about a lot of great stuff and you have a lot of good insights in terms of how to be a great product manager. So so yeah, we set up that episode, and I do remember the the recording of that episode, and also the content of that episode very clearly. So, guys, go check it out. That's episode one, and uh, of course, it sounds a little bit different back then than what it is today. But I think that really just kicked it off and really set my drive to keep on doing more at the end of the day. On the technical side, um, so I spoke about the lapel mic. So all I needed was a eight pound lapel mic, like plug that into my computer, and then I would just show up with that and then start recording these episodes. If you need to know how to actually upload it onto the internet, there's actually a lot of services that helps you do that. But um, I didn't want to end up paying, what, what was it, like 5 to 10 pounds a month to get that service or anything. So all I did was I just already had a website hosted on some server. And all you need is like an RSS file. After hosting that onto the internet, you could just use that and plug it into any other, you know, media content available platforms, such as like Spotify, uh Apple Music, all that kind of fun stuff. So that's basically the technical side, how I started this whole podcast. How did I build my audience? I think the audience is quite specific. I guess like the audience is anybody who loves talking about random stuff in tech from a software engineer's point of view. So I guess in this case, the software engineer is me. Yeah, I try to get it so that it's, you know, colloquial. What I mean by that is that any questions or any topic could happen to anybody at any time of the day which I personally find just the most interesting because our tech is run by, sorry, our life is run by tech <laughs> so often that you don't really see the lines and ask yourself how stuff works and why they work that way. So I guess in terms of building the audience, that was probably always the, the sphere, the content that I've always tried to build upon. And then in terms of sharing it, I remember back then, uh, it was basically just you know anybody who we work with, anybody who knew me or Balin. So uh, that started from there, and then as I probably got more guests, uh, you probably just get the word out, and then you start having, I guess you try to start posting stories or posting on your different social media platform about it, but it's kind of tough, because I guess obviously not everybody is interested <laughs> into what I do every single day. So I guess, how is my approach of building the audience? I think I just find one person who may have learned something out of it, and that's all I'm looking for. I just like knowing that one more person learned something new. And then if a second person ends up learning something to you, then yeah, good for them and good for me at the end of the day. Then you just look at the third one, fourth one. Honestly, um, that's basically my, my drive for doing this podcast. Question number 38. How are the growth numbers? Any progress in number of views? Yeah, so I wasn't expecting myself to be talking a lot about this uh, when I started doing the podcast, but I guess like as you do it, you kind of end up having to keep track of who's watching it, how many people are watching it at the end of the day. 
the progress has been good. I mean, honestly, thank everybody for actually listening to this or listening to me talk about anything. So even you just listening to this, like super, super grateful for you doing that. In terms of number of views, um, I think over the years, this podcast is what, two years old now? We broke the couple hundreds of views barrier, so thank God that's happening. I think I personally don't put that much importance on it because at the end of the day, you might realize that I keep on saying it, but this is quite selfish. I just do this so I can learn new stuff at the end of the day. But if, you know, saying one other person ends up learning something new, then I'm more than happy to do that. What do I do, I guess, to keep track of these numbers? Um, just because it's available on multiple platforms, so Spotify, Apple, YouTube. They all have their own, I guess, views counting system. So I have to go on every single one of them and keep track of, I guess, how many views are on there. Um, It's fun. It's interesting. But I really don't see myself being addicted to these numbers at the end of the day. Uh, Checking them every single day is probably too much hassle. So I just, you know, put stuff out and hopefully people enjoy it. Terrible marketing strategy. Don't hire me for that. Question number 39. Why did you decide to start a podcast? I don't know. Um, do I regret it? No, absolutely not. Uh, so basically, why did I decide to start a podcast? I think when I was talking about the conversations that I have, the content was already there. I talk about tech every single day with everybody I work with, everybody I don't work with. I'm just, a, I guess, a geek like that at the end of the day. So uh, when we were looking at content, I wasn't worried about that. It was always there. And then the only step missing was just recording it and putting it online. So that kind of consisted of the whole project. Um, why is it a podcast and not, I guess, a video series or whatever it is? Um, I just didn't want to put that much effort into it. I'll admit it. I'm trying to put the least amount of effort into, I guess, being able to share knowledge at the end of the day. So I guess this audio format kind of worked out well. And when I was saying I bought the lapel mic and just started recording people and having these conversations, that's kind of how this whole thing uh, started. And I'm really enjoying it, every single bit of that. So I guess that's probably the reason why I started a podcast. Another thing that actually... I end up realizing as I was doing more of these episodes that a lot of the tech-related day-to-day life is quite relatable to many, many different people. What I mean by that is one of the classic examples of somebody not in tech then jumping into tech. I seem to have that conversation with so many people and they don't know each other to begin with. So whoever's girlfriend is trying to do that or somebody that I used to work with went from non-tech to tech. That is such a buzzing topic, and I feel like just having a platform for me to actually be like, oh, look, I see this quite often, and it's definitely relatable to you and me. Or if you're somebody currently trying to be like, how do I get into tech? That is a topic I love talking and sharing about. So yeah, go check out episode four with Joe Summerhays. That's one thing that we actually dove quite deep into, and I still really enjoy that episode. Question number 40. What's the best thing you learned from doing the podcast? Oh, boy. There's not one best thing that I learned during the podcast. I think I've learned so many things that I'll just start listing them. Um, on the technical side, being able to host a podcast online, that was quite a fascinating journey. Uh, writing your first RSS file, uh, that I guess like it's useful because it is used in different places. So that was really fun to, to learn about. On the other hand, in terms of a little bit less technical, the amount of knowledge of every single guest I've had on the show is so valuable. Uh, when I keep on saying it's selfish, it's because I do remember a lot of these conversations, and if I ever do get to apply them in real life, even better. So another thing that I learned while doing this podcast is, uh, shout out to Alex. He was talking about how to prepare for a VC pitch, a VC you know meeting when you go in there with your idea and see if you can actually get an investment from them. Uh, that was quite memorable in terms of what I learned, but also all the different kind of point of view of somebody that works at tech but not exactly as a software engineer so 
big shout out to Tom, the designer. <laughs> um, I actually learned so much from him in terms of the process of designing the designing cycle and what tools do designers use when they actually want to, you know, adapt to whether a mobile application or a desktop application or even talking about just color palettes. Uh, those are all the kind of stuff that I learned from talking to different guests. And last but not least, I guess one of the better things that I learned through this podcast is that you don't really see the, I guess, the love between the people that work in tech. We don't, we're not the kind of people that just dish out like, man, those are great stuff you're building there. Like, those are great stuff that I'm putting out there kind of thing. But in terms of every time I've spoken to different guests about tech, there was always this appreciation of the human behind the tech. So when I talk to other engineers, like, they go like, oh, that's how you do things. That's really cool. Or when I talk to different product managers, I'll be like, oh, yeah, so that's why I think the work you do out there is really beneficial to me as a software engineer. So it's really reciprocal in terms of how people in tech appreciate each other, even though from the outside, when you look at it, it just looks quite muted. So, yeah, I think that's one of the better things that as I have more guests, everybody seems to appreciate what other people do. And hopefully that just ends up being better for everybody affected by technology. Basically, I learned that there's a lot of love between people in tech. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for the AMA for episode 20. Um, I still can't believe there's 20 episodes of this, but hey, let's keep the journey going. I just want to say thank you again to all the people that have been on the show, but also anybody who's listening as well. So, hey, big shout out to you guys. If you want more of this stuff, uh, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. You can find all that fun stuff at parrotsu.com, and I'll catch you guys on the next one.